August 9th, 1969, had been a normal morning for Winifred Chapman. She had gotten off the bus for work, like she usually did, and from there, she hitched a ride up Benedict Canyon to the sprawling California estate of her employer. The housekeeper, who often donned plastic cat-eyed frame glasses, picked up the newspaper outside the tomato-red French country-style house on Cielo Drive. She flipped the switch for the outside lights and unlocked the house's back door, walking into the kitchen. She picked up the phone to find the line dead. Something was wrong with the electricity, too, so she went to find someone in the house. Probably her boss, 26-year-old actress Sharon Tate. Instead, she found Tate's body. The honey-haired Hollywood vixen was lying in the living room next to her friend and ex-boyfriend, Jay Sebring. They had both been stabbed to death. Tate, who was married to director Roman Polanski, was eight months pregnant with their first child. Chapman ran screaming to a neighbor's house to call the police. When they arrived, they found two more bodies in the front yard, that of Wojcik Frykowski and 25-year-old Abigail Folger, heiress to the Folger coffee fortune. 18-year-old Stephen Parent was also found dead in his car on the property. He had been there to visit his friend, William Gerritsen, the 19-year-old caretaker of the property who lived nearby in a smaller guest cottage. Gerritsen had not only survived the brutal attack, he had no idea that it had happened until that morning, as police and reporters swarmed the Los Angeles estate. The next night, August 10th, two more murders took place that of Leno and Rosemary LaBianca. The middle-aged couple lived in Los Angeles' Los Feliz neighborhood. They were bound and stabbed. Death to pigs was scrawled in blood at the home, and on the refrigerator, the killers wrote the title of a Beatles song, Helter Skelter. Hollywood was in a panic. Seven seemingly ritualistic, brutal murders in the span of two nights Who could be behind this? What followed was one of the craziest stories in recent U.S. history, one of a crazy-eyed cult leader at the center of a murderous California commune, one about his young, pretty female followers, about the family they claimed to be, the Manson family. Their story shocked America, the world even. And as it unfolded, one family, far from the Hollywood Hills in the small town of Fort Collins, Colorado, became a footnote in that story, one that's often forgotten or gleaned over. You see, when you hear about the Manson family, you hear about Sharon Tate, about Jay Sebring, and about Abigail Folger. 
about the sexy starlets, the house on Cielo Drive, or the one in Los Feliz. Gary Hinman usually only warrants a paragraph or two. He was 34, a music teacher, that paragraph usually reads, and a one-time associate of the family who let them crash at his Topanga Canyon house from time to time. Well, he was also a native Coloradan, one who spent his formative years on Fort Collins High School's school newspaper, the Spilled Ink, one who played the piano for his family every Sunday in their stately College Avenue home. And on July 27, 1969, far from Colorado, and less than two weeks before the Tate and LaBianca murders, he became the Manson family's first victim. You're listening to episode 11 of The Way It Was, a podcast. The story of Gary Hinman. You know, Hinman is sort of an enigma. He, he, what I do know is very little that he's from Colorado, that he was a music teacher. He, he, he was a very, uh, well versed in, 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 you know, instruments, musical instruments, and, and he, uh, he was a hippie. That's Scott Michaels, and he's the man behind a rather unusual tour company in Los Angeles. Julie Departed Tours is uh, a, a lighthearted look at the dark side of Hollywood. So I've been, I've been in business for 14 years now, and we cover sort of the deaths and the scandals of Hollywood. We do it from uh, an historic perspective, but we also, you know, we'll also go for a cheap joke occasionally. Uh, but we, our regular tour goes to, uh, you know, places like Battle of the Ghosties, Last Home, and Mae West's Last Home, too where Hugh Grant was arrested with his pants around his ankles and that sort of thing. I know it's grim, but Michaels also has a weekend helter-skelter tour, which takes customers on a geographical trip through the sites related to the Tate and LaBianca murders. You may agree with it or not, and I'm sure Scott has had to defend his business plenty of times, but I think it illustrates one indisputable fact. People are fascinated with these two cases. Isn't it interesting? I mean, I think that I think the story is so weird because there's always some new nugget of information. This is endless fodder for television programs. I mean, cable television has opened the door for a plethora of shows. It used to be just the three network channels, and you know, once a year, uh, there around the anniversary, there might be a half an hour segment or a segment on the news. Well, now there's entire two-hour documentaries, you could probably find a dozen of them on, on demand just on regular cable, and then you go into the uh, uh, Netflix, et cetera. There's just, it's, it's never-ending. You, know, you could probably spend five years of your life watching programs having to do with this case and never see the same one uh, twice. The Tate and LaBianca murders were so senseless and so tragic. A gorgeous actress on the verge of motherhood, three of her young, sun-kissed friends, a teenager just trying to visit his friend, and an unsuspecting middle-aged couple, all of them just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's a story right out of, well, Hollywood, 
and it was treated as such. All the elements are present for one of the most sensational murder trials in American history. Seven people brutally murdered in a glare of Hollywood publicity. The involvement of a mystical hippie clan which despised the straight affluent society. Young girls supposedly under the spell of a bearded Svengali who allegedly masterminded the seven murders. One of the girls was only 16 years old. It took the grand jury just 20 minutes to agree that six members of the hippie tribe should be indicted in the Sharon Tate murders and those of a supermarket owner and his wife. The leader of the hippie clan, Charles Manson, is being returned to Los Angeles today from the desert town where he's been in jail on other charges. When the trial begins, probably in the spring, the state will attempt to prove that he gave the orders to his followers to kill. Don Oliver, NBC News, Los Angeles. So here's a quick timeline for how this all happened. By the 60s, Charles Manson had led a life of crime and spent a lot of time in reform schools and prison. In 1967, he's released and moves to Berkeley, California, when the summer of love is in full swing. He creates an image for himself as a sort of guru and philosopher, amassing a following in the process, made up mostly of young women. They travel the country together, bopping around to different states and across California, including Topanga Canyon, where Gary Hinman lived. I'm not exactly sure when this happened, but it's been widely reported that Hinman let members of the family stay at his house every once in a while. He was a hippie too, an intellectual who had recently discovered Buddhism. Manson, on the other hand, was leading his own religion of sorts. He had this band of followers and reportedly spoke to them about a race war bubbling between white and black Americans, a race war he sought to spark with a forthcoming crime wave. First, in early July 1969, Manson shot a black drug dealer named Bernie Crow in his Hollywood apartment, an attack that Crow actually survived. Then, on July 25, 1969, Manson sent family members Bobby Beausoleil, Mary Brunner, and Susan Atkins to the Topanga Canyon home of Gary Hinman. The family thought he had money, an inheritance, and they tortured him for two days trying to get him to turn it over. Manson even showed up at one point and sliced Gary's ear with a sword. When they didn't get any money out of him, Beausoleil stabbed Gary to death on July 27th. Using Gary's blood, the family members wrote the words political piggy on the wall and left a bloody paw print made to look like a Black Panther symbol to deceive investigators. On August 6th, a week and a half after Gary's murder, Beausoleil was arrested after being found asleep in one of Gary's cars. The arrest came two days before the Tate murders and three days after a simple obituary ran in a Fort Collins newspaper. There was no picture, and no details about his death. Gary A. Hinman, it said, was born on Christmas Eve, 1943, in Denver, Colorado. He grew up in Fort Collins, going to St. Joseph's School, then Fort Collins High School, where he graduated from in 1952. He got a chemistry degree from the University of Colorado, and then went to UCLA to earn his master's degree in political science. He continued to live out there in California, where he ran a bookstore and taught piano, accordion, and violin lessons. He died, it simply said, in Topanga Canyon on July 27, 1969.
1969. I started looking into the murder of Gary Hinman late last year. You see, Charles Manson, after a long life in prison, died on November 19, 2017. About a week later, I got an email. In it, a reader said that a former Fort Collins resident had been the Manson family's first victim. I was shocked. I pride myself on being a local history nerd and knowing these things, so when I googled Gary's name, I was shocked again. Like I said earlier, there was barely any major coverage of Gary and his death. There were some blog posts and a few lines about him in larger stories on the Tate and LaBianca murders. Then there was a story from the Denver Post, written back in 2014. Denver resident seeks to block parole of Manson family killer. Enter Kay Hinman Martley. Kay is 80 years old and still a Denver resident, like she was when she spoke to the Post back in 2014. When she returned my messages with a phone call this week, she spoke of her cousin Gary very matter-of-factly. She's done it so many times before. You see, it's always the same, she said. A Manson family member goes up for parole, or one of them dies, and she gets calls. Reporters ask the same questions, and she answers them, constantly reliving something that changed her family forever. Kay and Gary's fathers were brothers, the Hinman brothers, and in the mid-40s, they moved their families to Fort Collins so they could work on the Horsetooth Reservoir Dam under their construction company, Hinman Brothers Construction. So were you, did you grow up close to your cousins that also lived in Fort Collins? Yeah, well, we spent a lot of times uh, Sundays, uh, a lot of times at Gary's family's house, and Gary played the piano, and his mother mm -hmm. was quite proud of that, and we used to have Sunday dinners and then listen to him play the piano. That's my strongest memory of Gary, and of course, I was three years younger, so he tolerated me. Martley's side of the family ended up moving back to Denver after her father's death. And after Gary went off to California, she said she didn't really see much of him. Then he was gone. The way I understand it is Manson was needing money. So he sent um, Beausoleil and the two gals to go to the house and get money from Gary. Uh, and then he, Manson and Bruce Davis came to the house because Bobby said he says he doesn't have any money, and so they came, and Manson cut Gary's ear off at the process of that, and Davis threatened him with the gun. Then that he Manson left with Davis, and then uh, they made Gary sign over pink slip to both of his cars and took them, uh, and I think Bruce Davis drove away in one of them, and uh, they kept insisting that they give him money. And Gary kept saying, I don't have any money. Please take me to the emergency room or leave and let me call for help. And uh, Bosley called Manson and Manson said, no, finish him off. And that's what they did. And mm -hmm. then left him there to rot, literally. 
I guess you'd say we were an average family. Uh, my had uncles in the leg- Colorado legislature. Uh, my great grandmother was in Longmont, buried there. Uh, so we're, we're generations of of Coloradans, and you just don't think that happens to your own family. And Francis died within a year after uh, Gary's death, just because of the horror of it all. Frances, again, was Gary's mother, and she passed away a year later, in 1970. Gary's father remarried and stayed in Fort Collins, where he died in 1986, according to his obituary. His two daughters, Gary's younger sisters, survived him and remain in Colorado. Bobby Beausoleil was found guilty of the murder of Gary Hinman in the spring of 1970, as was family member Susan Atkins, who died in prison in 2009. Beausoleil was sentenced to death, but that was later commuted to life in prison. More than a decade after Gary's death, Beausoleil told a magazine that the murder was over a bad batch of drugs Hinman had sold him, which is unconfirmed and was never brought up in either of Beausoleil's trials. Martley denies that Gary was ever involved in drugs and contends that he was connected to the family through music, him being a music teacher, and Manson being a failed musician. Beausoleil is now 70 years old and still in prison. His latest parole bid in 2016 was denied, and he'll be eligible again in 2019. Martley will likely be there. She goes to every parole hearing for him and other Manson family members. I now go to the parole hearings for Bruce Davis and Bobby Beausoleil. Uh, and I've gone to Tex Watson's uh, parole hearing because I want uh, to tell them they can't let these people out. And they're, they're after so many years, California doesn't want to pay to have them incarcerated. So their budget is saying, let's let these old guys out. And I said, you know, but that's fine if it's a felony, but these people were mass murderers. And why would you let them back out on the street? And that's what they want to do. So I go to all these parole hearings uh, to prevent that. That mm. I represent the family in doing that. Uh, mm. It's almost, it's become a calling. <laughs> but it mm-hmm. just makes me so mad. Gary's a nobody. And little Steve Parent, who was killed at the Tate House, he's a nobody. But his family is devastated as well. I just want... Gary to be treated with respect, and I just don't feel like that's what ends up happening. Gary Hinman wasn't famous. He was, as is often repeated in the news stories, a music teacher. But he was also a brother, a son, a cousin. And from the beginning, he was a Coloradan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Way It Was. I hope you learned something you didn't know before tuning in. I promise next month's episode will be a lot lighter. For February, I'll be taking on Loveland and its reputation as a sweetheart city. So stay tuned for that. And thanks again, as always, for diving into The Way It Was. Until next time.